is a Lama Chikmegyatso of the Buddha Joy Meditation School. Welcome to Meditate Like a Jedi. I am live streaming on two platforms simultaneously, YouTube and Instagram. So I'll be bouncing between two cameras. And of course, this live stream will also become a podcast. So if you are listening on Instagram or the podcast and you wish to see the the class materials and the visual aids, you'll want to look this up on the YouTube channel. Having said that, tonight's live stream, the topic of tonight's live stream is driving while under the influence of meditation. I'm going to take a moment to say, to wave to two people who are visiting on Instagram. Welcome folks, you have questions, jot it in the comment area. A good-hearted fellow wrote and asked me if it was safe to meditate while driving. I will answer this in a moment, but first I must remind you that the production of these videos and live streams and podcasts and blogs and PDFs and class materials is supported by the generosity of viewers and listeners and readers just like you. Now, let's get down to it. Is it safe, no less beneficial, to meditate while driving? It depends on what style of meditation we are practicing. If we are trying to chase experiences, we are trying to analyze and interpret experiences, then no, do not try to meditate while driving. But if we are using the Buddha's method of mindfulness and of passively being vulnerable to whatever comes up, whether it is blissful or painful, whether it is glorious or grotesque, whether it is this present moment or a memory or a fantasy. (coughs) If we are practicing the Buddhist moment of being vulnerable without analyzing, without interpreting, without labeling, then it is safe, not only safe to meditate while driving, but it actually could enhance our alertness and resourcefulness and patience because nobody likes even a little bit of road rage. The Buddha's, so the Buddha talked about seven factors of enlightenment. First enlightenment factor is mindfulness. Now that is not concentration. Concentration is active, focus. Mindfulness is passive awareness. And that's not just a difference in verbiage. It's a difference in energy. So 
The mindfulness the Buddha teaches is centered and spontaneous and vulnerable and non-conceptual. The second enlightenment factor has been translated as investigation. I prefer to translate it as curiosity, which is the opposite of defensiveness. <coughs> so we do not view our experiences as either an indictment against us or a validation of us. We simply choose to be vulnerable to the present moment experience, remembering that our only job is to notice in harmony with our inhalations and then relax in harmony with each exhalation. In the Anapanasati Sutta, which is the Buddha's concise meditation manual, he says that after we have sit, assumed a cross-legged posture, we are to bring our awareness in front of our bodies, which means eyes wide open. In Tibet, it is taught that if your eyes are closed, it's the opposite of mindfulness. It is the opposite of confronting present moment existence. It is hiding from reality. And nobody wants that. <coughs> the third base, I'm sorry, the third enlightenment factor is energy or enthusiasm. Enthusiasm when misguided causes us to label and analyze and try to figure out our contemplative experiences. But we can take our enthusiasm and apply it to vulnerability and acquiescence, to noticing and letting go. The, we're going to come back to the fourth enlightenment factor. The fourth enlightenment factor is joy. We're coming back to that in a minute. A fifth enlightenment factor could be explained as physical relaxation, which, which is something that we are wired to do during every exhalation. <coughs> Please excuse my allergies. <coughs> the sixth factor of enlightenment is coalescence, or in other words, mental release. So the fifth enlightenment factor is physical relaxation. The sixth is mental release. And there is a causal relationship between the two. For as we physically relax, our intellects and our emotions tend to release. There's nothing mystical or magical or special about that. It's hardwired into the, our neurology. It is this noticing, which is the first enlightenment factor, and this relaxation and release, our fifth and seventh enlightenment factors, that gives rise to a feeling of joy, which is the fourth enlightenment factor. What then? What is the seventh enlightenment factor? Equanimity. What does that mean? means balance. Balance between neither 
being a slave to our energies that want to shove certain things away, nor a slave to our energies which either want to reach for things or hold on to things. So we, we do not wish to be the marionette of our impulses to push or to pull. That is why we meditate. For we do not accomplish this balancing act through cleverness or through willpower. We do it through the simple act of marrying the four bases of mindfulness with the three marks of existence. Tonight, let's look at the fourth base of uh, mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mind. And to do that, I'm going to open up a text for those who are watching along on YouTube. <coughs> Please bear with me while I go into a screen sharing mode. And let's see here. Hit the share button. And there's the text right there. Go to the table of contents. Mental happiness, page 66, control G, 66, come on, number lock, 66, there we go. Now, it would be, if, if one of the great tragedies of our modern age is that many people who claimed to be teachers of mindfulness meditation really don't reference the Buddha or his teachings, which is kind of lame because this is his style of meditation. So if that which I am teaching you is something you have never heard before, allow me to assure you that I'm not clever enough or deceitful enough to have made this up myself. For the fourth base of mindfulness is referred to as Sita in Pali. And the three marks of existence is known as Tilakkana in Pali. I'm not clever enough to invent another language. Heck, I'm not even clever enough to figure out OBS. Okay, so we're going to move to the next page. So, we want to find the balance between pushing and pulling. So what we're going to do is first explore our natural tendencies to push and then deconstruct them. Then we're going to explore our natural tendencies to clutch and deconstruct them. And then we're going to find the middle ground, and you guessed it, deconstruct that as well. And I have a new, I want to say, take a moment to wave to you. Be Arthur Babies. Not sure if that's Julian or David, two of my beautiful former neighbors. 
and their fabulous children. So we could think of it this way. Our mind could be likened to a tennis court. On one side of the, of the, uh, of the net, we have aversion. On the other side, we have avarice. So we're going to begin with aversion. The Buddha described this in terms of the duality of shame and fame. <coughs> Shame and fame are the domain of our midbrain. And oh my goodness, I've rhymed. Please forgive me. Some people would say if I was truly spiritual, I would neither mind the feelings of shame nor desire the, the experience of fame. But the Buddha never taught that. The Buddha taught that both Buddhas and Buddhas alike, the enlightened and the unenlightened are subject to the same spectrum of human emotions. The very presence of an emotion, the very presence of an impulse is not a spiritual indictment. But what that, which separates the women from the girls and the men from the boys is not what we feel, but rather what we do with what we feel. Allow me to explore this a little bit deeper. Every complex animal upon the planet, whether they walk or crawl or swim or fly, every complex animal has a brainstem. A brainstem that desires optimal circumstances and optimal health. So every healthy mammal on the planet with a fully functional membrane, replete with a free, what's it called? A, uh, okay, we have the mirror neurons and a anterior gyrant. That's the word. Every healthy mammal with fully functional anterior gyrant and mirror neurons wants to experience the esteem of its peers. In fact, nine times out of ten, if we go back far enough through the mists of time, uh, the survival of our ancestors depended upon the esteem of our peers. Therefore, it should come as little to no surprise that the midbrain of every healthy mammal is already wired by evolutionary biology to shun shame, the, the experience of shame and to crave the experience of fame. There's no need to whip ourselves, to self-flagellate because we experience those things. In fact, if we beat ourselves up over an honest assessment of what we feel, it could actually repress and undermine our mindfulness. And nobody wants the facts. So we experience the courage to be vulnerable to the possibility 
that a very, very real part of our mammalian brain actually hates either the experience or the possibility of feeling shame. It hates memories that make us feel shame. It hates imaginary scenarios that could make us feel shame. Our job is not to repress any of that. Our job is to notice it and explore it and allow it to deconstruct. Consider, if you will, a plant that produces fruit. First it produces a bud, and then that bud becomes flowers, petals fall off, and then the fruit grows, whether it be a berry or an apple or some such thing. Likewise, we notice the emotion, we notice the potentiality, if not the actuality. We relax and we watch the peace come all by itself. Peace is like a kitty cat hiding under a couch. We cannot chase the kitty cat and expect it to respond favorably towards us. It'll just run away faster than we can chase. But if we go in the kitchen and open up a can of wet food, it'll come to us likewise. <coughs> By performing the next four contemplations, I'm sorry, the next 12 contemplations, we will experience peace coming to us like a kitty cat approaching a bowl of its favorite wet food. Let us begin with the stress of shoving shame away. We never have to choose the stress. It's hardwired into us. And this stress is known as dukkha in Pali. <coughs> We notice here that we're going to count one set of four breaths. So we count that first set by touching the tip of our left thumb to our left little finger and sliding it down to the lower set of creases. Now we turn our attention to our right hand, where we will and on, we will advance our thumb during every first in-breath, we'll bring our thumb to the lower set of creases of our right little finger. And then during the second breath, we'll advance it. And the third breath, we'll advance it. And the fourth breath, we'll advance it. This is a rhetorical question. How hate shame? Relaxing. The power of a rhetorical question is found not in our vain, glorious efforts to answer it. No, the power of a rhetorical question is found in our silent mental recitation of it, followed by our intention to relax in harmony with our exhalation. So in harmony with our breathing, silently and mentally recite, how hate shame, relaxing. We're going to do this for four breaths.
Now we're going to get a little bit spooky. How could shame always change? This is not an element of faith, but a phenomena that is easily absorbed. You see that you see the changing of the of the, the seasons. We're seeing the impermanence of a year. When we observe the waxing and the waning of the moon, we are observing the impermanence of a month. When we see the rising and the setting of a sun, of the sun, we are observing the impermanence of a day. And even now, as we rest our hands upon our chest, as we feel it swell, and as we feel it sink, we are experiencing the impermanence of a single round of breath. And so impermanence is not an object of faith. Just that which is observed by even the youngest of children. So let's play with this right now. How could shame always change counting on our right um, what's it called? Ring finger. And we get even spookier with the third question. How could shame not be me? We do not have to believe it. By simply reciting the question, we are, are sowing the seeds for our subconscious to begin to let go of that which identifies with our emotions. <coughs> Buddhism is effective Buddhism. The Buddhism that is truly authentic is all about releasing and letting go. And this question could help. How could shame not be me? We're going to count upon our right middle finger. And then you keep your wrists and your thighs and your palms facing the ceiling. I lift my hand up just so that you can follow along, not feel terribly overwhelmed by my instructions. Oh, I have a new visitor I'm going to wave to. Let's see. So we advance to the fourth exercise. And we're going to count upon our right index finger. Notice shame. Relaxing. So we've gone from hating shame to merely noticing shame. We haven't repressed our experience of shame. We've just moved from the maelstrom of the whirlwind to the center of the storm. 
We're now going to shift gears. We've we spent four content, four sets of con of contemplations, experiencing our aversion to shame. Now we're going to spend the next four contemplations exploring our desire for fame, our desire for the approval of our peers, which is very natural, but not necessarily beneficial. These next four exercises are very much like the previous four exercises. <coughs> the only difference being we've switched out one noun. This is not an act of laziness. This is an act of convenience for it lends itself to greater ease of memorization. So since we're moving to our second set of four contemplations, we advance our left thumb up our left little finger to the middle set of creases. We now turn our attention back to our right hand, back to our right little finger. How crave fame? Relaxing. Our job is not to answer the question. Job is to silently and mentally recite it in harmony with our inhalation and then relax as best we can in harmony with our exhalation. How crave fame? Relaxing. Now it advance to the second of four exercises. We, we are revisiting our old friend in permanence or Anika in Pali. How could fame always change? We advance to our third of four exercises. How could fame not be me? Remember, our job is not to analyze, our job is not to ponder, our job is to silently and mentally recite these words passively and vulnerably. If all we do is practice some sort of contemplative reading and harmony with our breathing, that is actually sufficient. Count this upon our right middle finger. How could fame not be me? All these uh, guided meditations are already written out and ready for free download through the website. If you're on Instagram, simply go to my bio, find the link. The link will take you to my website. The website, will, if you follow the YouTube icon, will take you to the actual uh, live stream page where you find the specific links for the download page. 
right in the area below the video called video description. I guess it's called the description area of the video. We turn now to the fourth of four exercises. Notice fame, relaxing, and we count it upon our right index finger. So in the span of just four contemplations, we've gone from craving fame to merely noticing fame. Actual or potential, real or imagined. <coughs> if you persist with these live streams, you'll hear me make many mentions of neuroscience. Neuroscience can be verified through imaging studies, through fMRIs, through electroencephalographs, and the like. For far too many centuries, people have been relying upon superstitions and erudite-sounding philosophies that really aren't based in reality. And then one of the things I really respect about the teachings attributed to Buddha, whether he was real or whether he was merely an art, was the idea that the test of the teachings and the test of the teachings instructors is not their beauty, or their fame, or their popularity, or their prestige, or their wealth. The test is simply the results we get when we apply them correctly, consistently, and enthusiastically. If we receive a teaching and apply it to every day, twice a day, for six and a half consecutive days, and we get crap results, then go find a better teacher. If anyone tells you, oh, you just need more faith in your teacher, run, run away, find someone who is rooted in the scientific method of <coughs> that takes action and notices its results and bases its next set of actions on the previous set of results. So, as promised, we spent four sets of contemplations dealing with aversion or pushing away. The second set of contemplations dealing with avarice or pulling or, or clutching or craving. <coughs> now we're going to deal with the actual tennis court. In this case, the tennis court of our mind. The mind that can feel shame or the mind that can experience fame. So we're going to advance upon our left little finger yet again and return to our right hand. How grasp mind relaxing.
we move to impermanence, how could mind always change? Let's count this upon our right ring finger. Now, you could understandably ask, how am I supposed to remember to practice all these questions while driving? Simple. You work with this practice text, which you can download for free. And you play with it every morning. And you play with it, with it every evening. Within a handful of weeks, you will involuntarily memorize it. And once you do, you can practice it anywhere. You can practice walking. I like practicing it during my brisk walking, morning walk. You can practice it while you're sitting in a park. You can practice it while you're driving. <coughs> Let's continue. How could mind not be me? How could that make sense? It doesn't have to make sense. The purpose of this question is just to help us to break our habit of identifying with our mind, of grasping tightly onto our mind to help us in, in, do instead to let go of it. We count upon our right middle finger. How could mind not be me? Did you hear that? That was my elbow. Come to our fourth exercise of the set. <coughs> Count upon our, oh, someone just joined actor Sean Spence. Hello, actor Sean Spence, the finest actor in Burbank. So we're going to count upon our right index finger. Notice mind, relaxing. If all we do is silently and mentally recite these syllables in harmony with our breath, that is sufficient. Notice mind relaxing as we sit erect. Actually, Sean is the second best actor in, in Burbank. The first best actor is his dog, Maddie. Boy. Every day I meet her, she gives an Oscar-worthy performance. Well, we've just completed 12 contemplations. Our mind could understandably be fatigued. So now we're going to relax into the nature of mind, which is as poetic as it is crippling. What that really means is that during the in-breath, we're going to watch what mind does. Whether it perceives sensation or flavor or scent or sight or sound, or whether it emotes or intends or calculates or recalls or imagines. And on the outbreath, we're just going to relax. And we're going to do all that while silently and mentally reciting. Notice this relaxing. So once again, we're going to advance 
our left thumb upon our left little finger up to its tip. We're gonna turn our attention to our hand, and now that we're comfortable counting the creases and tips of each of our four fingers, you will not need me to hold your hand through the process. Notice this, relaxing. We have practiced contemplation and we have practiced meditation. Now it is time to conclude with a practice of compassion. Look like a bunny, I'll go to the return to the table of contents. And it's instructing me to turn to page 89 of our virtual sadhanam or practice text, our guided meditation. And since the theme of our 12 contemplations was it is only fitting that the theme of our compassion also be We're going to apply compassion to four scopes, first to ourselves, then to our neighbors, then to all earthlings, and then to all beings of all worlds, real or imagined. And you might ask, hey, isn't it selfish to wish good things for myself? How can I use my own selfishness to actually to increase my love for others? Good question. The desire to lavish benefits or upon ourselves is hardwired into our brains. The desire to lavish benefits of others is hardwired into our midbrain, which sits upon our brains now. By using our already present familiarity with self-concern, we can use it the way a sprinter uses starting blocks to push off against, to push off from self-love into local love, into global love, into universal love. But do not take my word for it. You really won't know if this is true or not until you 
put it to the test. Again, let us count upon, let us count our first set by touching the tip of our left thumb to our left little finger and sliding it down to the lower set of creases. Returning our attention to our right hand. <coughs> Excuse me. And setting this, um, actually the instructions say index finger, so that's what we'll do. We'll count it upon the left index finger <coughs> and upon the right little finger. Now, of course, we're going to keep with our tradition of using a polymer grip. Although it is torment to English teachers, with silent meditation, it's imperative to we use an economy of syllables. Wise for this mind, relaxing. Turn our attention to our neighbors. Who, who our, who are our neighbors? Any living being that we can perceive with any five, of, any one of our five senses. Wherever we go, anyone we perceive is our neighbor. Hence, it could be said that we've never met a stranger, just a neighbor we may be unfamiliar with. Wise for neighbors, wise for neighbors, relaxing. We count upon our right ring finger. attention to all beings of this planet, whether they walk or crawl or swim or fly, regardless of whether we agree with them or not. We all share some things in common. All of us want to live and not to die. All of us want pleasure and not pain. We are all siblings under the skin. Therefore, we can practice compassion, a compassion that wishes good for all of our fellow earthlings, a compassion that chooses to no longer exploit or murder others uh, for their flesh, or that chooses to no longer pay others to murder cows and chickens and fish and the like for our gullet, especially in light of the fact that science has shown that the optimal diet for a human is a whole food vegan diet. And if you would like more information on that, I recommend going to the YouTube channel, Mike the Vegan, M-I-C the Vegan. And he has a wealth of information, both scientific and humorous. Now, let's count upon our right 
middle finger, wise for earthlings, relaxing. We conclude upon our right index finger, wise for all beings of all worlds, real or imagined. If you're as geeky as me, you have no problem dreaming. Going intergalactic. Wise for all beings, relaxing. Since the time of the Buddha, those who practice and teach the Buddha's instructions full-time relied upon the generosity of their students. To quote Jasker from the first season of Witcher, toss a coin to your Witcher, old valley of plenty. Until next we speak, may you and yours be healthy.